Welcome to the Supply Chain Pioneers Podcast, where we highlight industry leaders on the forefront of innovation and technology in planning, procurement, and logistics. Hosted by your supply chain pro to know, Ulf Venn. Yeah, David Thorniewell, well, I'm a company called Motorola in the supply chain area. Supply chain is absolutely essential for the economy and the world economy. 2018 became Group CISO for Deutsche Post DHL. I speak with boards, I speak with advisory boards, and generally give advice on what to do around cybersecurity. But many of the lessons learned from supply chain are applicable to, to the IT function as well. Supply Chain Pioneers is powered by Everstream Analytics. Everstream gives you the predictive insights and analytics to make your supply chain faster, smarter, safer, and leaner. Go to everstream.ai to book your demo today. Hello, everybody, okay. and welcome to a new episode of Supply Chain Pioneers. And today I'm with David Thornewell, who is a board-level cybersecurity executive former DAX CISO and CIO, and also an advisor, coach, and mentor when it comes to the topic of cybersecurity risk. Welcome, David. Morning, Ulf. So as we always start, it would be great for you to give us a short introduction of the person that is David Thornewell. Yeah, David Thornewell. Well, I was born in the UK a long time ago in the 50s, grew up in rural England, went to the same school as Isaac Newton, that's a claim to fame. Moved to Germany in 77, where I studied in Munich and eventually joined a company called Motorola. I'm sure many people have heard of it in the supply chain area. And with that company, after four years in Munich, moved to Arizona, USA, stayed with Motorola for a couple of years. They started spinning off their semiconductor area. I went with them to on semiconductor. At some point, I have my own company. And then eventually, as I say, I ran out of money before I ran out of ideas. So I had to feed my kids. So that's how I fell into DHL and joined DHL in 2002 in Arizona, moved to Prague in 2004 to help build a data center there. And yeah, moved to Bonn 2007 and then 2008 became global CIO for our central functions in DHL. And then did that for a number of years, and in 2018 became Group CISO for Deutsche Post DHL, and did that until I retired at the end of last year. And since then, I've been working as a, uh, well, I've been retired, uh, cooking a lot more, doing a lot more sports, doing a lot more uh, with my wife, but also every now and again, I speak with boards, I speak with um, supervisory boards, and generally give advice on what to do around cybersecurity, especially the non-technical side. So what needs to be done to make companies resilient, what, what other functions other than IT can do, procurement, for instance, or the finance function, or the HR function, and there's, uh, there's a lot they can do to help defend the company and be in a position to react in the case of an attack. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing and uh, keeps me healthy and honest, I think. Yeah, and we're going to deep dive in all of that in the next couple of uh, minutes. So let's directly get started at the start and at the end of your career, which is 
which is not the end of your career because now you're doing advisory. But let's say the the uh, what what people would call the everyday working hours nine to five job career. So you started in supply chain, and then you ventured into other areas in the business to eventually come back to the biggest logistics provider in the world. As this is a supply chain podcast, what does working in supply chain mean to you from a personal level? It's really exciting. It's one of those functions that perhaps isn't at the top of for a career. I mean, it's not, you know, one of the traditional things that one thinks about, perhaps starting with train driver, going over doctor and accountant and so on and so forth. But it is absolutely essential for the for the economy and the world economy. Goods need to be moved. You know, when I started with Motorola, I was working, as I say, manufacturing semiconductors where we would, our wafers in Scotland and France, ship them over to Taiwan and uh, the Philippines for assembly, ship them again to Korea and America for testing, and then put them into distribution warehouses, from which point they needed you know, moving on to the end customers and OEMs in a timely, you know, just-in-time manner. It was very interesting in the 80s and late 80s, early 90s, going through some of those transitions as, you know, things like Lean and JIT and all of these things became fashionable and interesting. Exciting area, yeah. I think people are still talking about just-in-time today. Right? Yeah, yeah, to exactly. It. I mean, it's... It's it's interesting to hear some of the conversations and, you know, know some of the original publications that came out in the 80s and 90s and people talk about it today as if it's the new thing and uh, <laughs> it's not that new. Yeah, it definitely isn't anymore, but it's still, yeah, it always depends on the industry, I believe, right? You have forerunners and then you have people that come a little bit later so it's it's definitely something people are still adopting today, although it's probably yeah. 30 years old by now. It's, it's, yeah, you know, one of the things that has been really interesting is I started not in the IT function and then eventually when I joined DHL, moved into IT. And many of the lessons learned in manufacturing or indeed for a while I was in the finance function, but many of the lessons learned from supply chain are applicable to to the IT function as well, but many people in IT have grown up in a only in an IT environment, and so haven't been exposed to, you know, things like lot size of one, and so it's new to them, right? Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Actually, we will talk about this a little bit more later, mm -hmm. but but let's first start coming from from your journey, personal journey, and you have started working as a CIO in 2008, which personally I find to be very groundbreaking because I didn't have the feeling that in 2008, cybersecurity and information security was such a big topic globally. But And it actually, if you look at the Allianz Risk Barometer, which from a risk perspective is the most known source, I think, globally, you it only became a, a top risk, top 10 risk in 2014. So you were six years ahead of the curve. Um, well, how, yeah, yeah, not quite six years ahead. Actually, in 2008, I was a CIO and focused on trying to become a CIO and and and, and learning that. However, in 2010, early 2011, one of my colleagues at Deutsche Post retired, and he happened to be chairman of the Information Security Council. 
and they were looking for a new chairman. And at the meeting, I didn't duck quickly enough. Everybody else seemed to be busy. And anyway, I got the chairmanship. And so I very quickly had to learn about cybersecurity uh, around 2011, not knowing mm -hmm. and being aware of it, but it certainly wasn't a key topic. But as I got more and more involved, it became very clear that this was an important area to uh, to focus on. Before I dive into how to tackle cybersecurity, let's move into today, where we see cyber being the biggest risk out there. Essentially, when you look at, again, the Allianz Risk Barometer, it has been the top number one for the last couple of years, except for the COVID area where business interruption was number one. Mm. Um, but essentially, cyber has gotten to a place where it even is important when it comes to, to wars. And cyber warfare is being a, a major part of global strategies. Which industries, because we come from an industry space, both of us are especially at risk of being victim of a broader place. And why do you think that is? Well, you know, when it comes to the geopolitical dynamic, there are various geographies that have different interests and therefore their targets are different. For instance, it's said that North Korea is typically using cyber criminality to gain money. And consequently, you know, its attacks are on banks, financial institutions, uh, a lot around um, cryptocurrency as well, where, you know, they've they've certainly use some of the gray areas there to enrich themselves. So that's sort of the finance sector. Then there are other companies that try and make their industry more competitive by stealing IP. And therefore, high value IP gets stolen from pharmaceutical industries, from other industries that do, you know, deep research. Then there are yet other uh, regimes that are more interested in perhaps destabilizing democracies. And they're you know, you that's where we get the, the fake news from using, you know, cyber criminality or destabilizing factors by undermining the capabilities of companies, perhaps like DHL. And then finally, there's the cyber warfare itself, where you're trying to, de you know, cyber warfare probably will never win a war, but it can create unpleasantness for the population. So as we've seen in Ukraine, you know, there's a lot of attacks on utilities electricity generating uh, and distribution capabilities, gas and heating distribution capabilities. So there, there's no money to be made per se, but uh, disturbance amongst the amongst society. Mm -hmm. So having laid the land of uh, the various risks that are out there for cyber security and industries and the, po uh, yeah, the population in general, what does it need for corporations to be prepared from a key element perspective, right? What are the key elements that an information security strategy must incorporate to have a chance at being successful? Well, you know, uh, in some of my conversation, this is the conversation I have with boards and supervisory boards. I mean, this is precisely the question they want to know. And I say, you know, it's important to have a lot of technology, but I use a an acronym called THRUST, T-H-R-U-S-T, where the First T stands for transparency. So you've got to know what you've got. You know, you've got to know what equipment you've got. You've got to know what software you have, what people you have. And the people is not only employees, but contractors and other people that go, that have access to some of your assets. 
So you have to know what you have. You have to have be clear who owns those, who's accountable, who's responsible for making sure they're kept up to date, or if somebody does something, who can I reach out to to correct that? And then what situation are they in? Is a server suitably patched? Is software updated? Because keeping things up to date is one of the best defenses you can have. Uh, we've seen that over and over again. So that's transparency. Then you come to the human firewall. So are your employees suitably trained? Are your executives trained to lead in times of crisis? And do you run simulations to practice that? You know, you wouldn't take part in a, say, a, a tennis competition at the weekend and on Saturday morning read a book on tennis um, and hope to win on the in the competition on Sunday. No, you practice ahead of time so that when you get to the competition, you know what to do and it's almost automated. And that's uh, what, where simulations help. So that's the human firewall. Rules and regulations are you. Um, you can only follow the rules that you know about. And in too many companies, uh, this was the case in DHL, we had many rules, but they were hidden in file shares, in, in various documents, and they need bringing together and making transparency of people so that they know what to do, because most people will. A very important area is the supply chain. You know, you can't survive without you, the people delivering stuff to you. So uh, in DHL, one of our important suppliers, of course, was, say, the people who provided jet fuel. We had a, a very significant case. This was public uh, where a, a time tracking system, uh, Kronos, suffered a ransomware attack. And we had to really scramble to be able to pay 150,000 employees. So. You know, watching the supply chain and making sure your suppliers are adequately protected is important. And finally, T, technology. You do need technology, and there's lots of acronyms here, AIP, ISMS, and, 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 and. The CISO and the, the IT department will certainly be taking care of that. But those first four areas are areas where, um, as, I say, as I said earlier, other functions can take part. So that's they're some of the important areas. Yeah. So let's focus on the human, which you mm. mentioned as one of the key focus areas. Employees and also suppliers being at your premise play a, a central role in building defenses. And cyber risk is actually constantly changing. So people have to be retrained all the time. Mm. How, can, uh, how can people get motivated to take time out of their busy schedule and focus on, for example, security trainings to stay up to date with what is currently best practice? Perhaps a, a couple of things to think about. One is to make tr training uh, relevant and understandable. So training starts a lot earlier than the actual training session. It starts with awareness. Okay, there's something coming. This is why. And education as to, you know, what why we're training people and what they can then do with the training. Training is itself actually the, the third step. And then you have to, once you've done the training, as I mentioned earlier, you, you have to then test whether that training had an effect. So with simulation, so in one area, um, you know, we did a lot of, um, people can do a lot of, um, say, fishing simulations. I mean, fishing is one of the major uh, one of the major channels that malware gets into a company. You can do other things as well, such as 
another another way that uh, people get into companies is social engineering and you can do what's called vishing so uh, voice phishing uh, so you can randomly call people up and see if you can get information from them or get access to the system and then make it clear to people how easy that is uh, so it's it's a case of awareness education training and then practice and then from and then from that practice you gain observations lessons learned and then you can go and tweak whatever you're training as well mm -hmm. I actually do remember I have to to spoil uh, I have to reveal something now I was a I have been I actually I'm very serious about cybersecurity and I I take these trainings very seriously but I was was traveling a lot at one point in time and I haven't done my training in time and I was threatened that my mails get shut off in DHL. Yeah, that's one of the things we did. You know, an important aspect is to make it interesting and, you know, a little bit joking. So we had mm. a DHL, we had this Atavar called Paula that everybody knew and she was persistently in the, in the media, on the websites, yeah. in various printed channels and whatever, and would give people tips and, um, and, but sometimes you need that sort of the carrot, but sometimes you do need the stick. And uh, like you say, if people didn't do the required trainings, then email got shut off. Um, and that went all the way up to the board level as well. And, uh, yeah, but, but we had a lot of support from our then CEO, Frank Apple, who was adamant that people would do the training. He said he took time out and if he could take time out, everybody could take yeah. time out. So. And yeah. in all fairness, I found that to be an ingenious move. So I was very impressed by the commitment to cybersecurity personally, and I felt much better about it. And for me, it was really just, I, I traveled and I, I kind of messed up essentially. So I, I'm, I'm spoiling here. I did a failure once, but I, I'm really, this is an important topic for me. That's also why we picked it for the podcast. You know, in towns, we're supposed to drive at 50 kilometers an hour. And I know not everybody does. In fact, I've been known to drive a little bit faster than 50 uh, occasionally. But we have speed checks and speed fines. And not everybody, every time they do something wrong, gets a fine. But there's enough of a presence out there that makes people stick to more or less 50 kilometers an hour. Mm -hmm. And such it is with mandatory trainings as well. You don't have to penalize everybody. But uh, once once it starts you know, spreading around the gossip, the talk, the, the water cooler chats that there are some sanctions, then people get on with it and, and do it. And so we had a compliance rate of 99 point something percent. It was uh, pretty impressive over, well, we had 600,000 employees, but people who had to do this re regular online training, that was about almost 300,000 folks. So um, yeah, we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, rightfully so, actually. So I do remember from previous discussions, especially also when you presented at one of our conferences back in the days, you talked about shifting away from cyber defense to what's more resilience and managing risks. It seems to be quite in line with the newer concepts of agility and resilience in supply chain. So I, I would love if you just talk about this a little bit. Well. Firstly, risks. You have to know what risks that you're defending against. As I elucidated earlier, there are different scenarios for attack, for political motives, criminal motives, just destructive terrorist type motives as well. So you have to know where you stand in that uh, scenario. And there's, you know, one of the things, for instance, that 
you know, we realize or we recognize in DHL is that there's not a tremendous amount of um, secret IP. Most people know how we do things. Actually doing it well is different. But uh, and therefore, you know, a lot of defenses protecting trade secrets that would have been perhaps wasted effort and wasted money and taken energy away from other things that were important, like protecting, you know, our hubs and gateways and the things that actually move, uh, move goods through the system. You know, the defense of the supply chain became very, very clear in 2017 when Maersk was famously hit with the NotPetya virus and, you know, they went down in nine minutes the problem was that they couldn't get containers off ships and it was our containers on those ships. Equally, TNT was hit as well. And the problem there was all of the people who couldn't send their shipments with TNT sent them with DHL, which sounds like that's great, that growth in business. But the influx was so large that it created service problems. You know, our hubs gateways were clogged up for a um, a few days uh, because of that sudden influx. So yeah, you've got to know exactly what risks you're facing so that you can defend against those and so that you can measure as well. If I invest X, I get return Y and that reduces my risk to such and such. And that's important, A, to know how to quantify and state those risks in the in the in the risk log, which uh, which has to be published, and also it helps when you are going for things like cyber insurance. If it's clear, you know your risks, you can explain them. Uh, insurers understand those as well and can give you credit or or indeed charge you for the risk they have to cover. So, risk management is extremely important, and then resilience is. You know, another way is to reduce the what's called the blast radius of an attack. You know, you can do that by things like network segmentation, making smaller cells of computing assets that don't directly communicate with with each other so that if somebody breaks in, they might create damage in one area, but that doesn't spread to the whole company immediately. So there are things like that. And then, of course, as mentioned, in the case of an attack, uh, you know, the executives need to lead the company, but they need to know what to do. You, you don't want to be making up, oh, let's try this now in the middle of an attack. You have to act too quickly. And so it's important that, as I mentioned, that, you know, you simulate attacks and that the senior executives take part in those simulations, which in the early days wasn't necessarily the case, but later became better and better. So that, as I say, HR knows what to do, knows how to reach out to 600,000 uh, employees and tell them what to do, where to go, make them secure in knowing they will be taken care of. Or the finance function knows what to do in the case of, say, ransomware. You know, do you pay? Who makes those decisions? How would you pay in cryptocurrency? Uh, it's not that easy for public companies to, to acquire cryptocurrency. So all of these questions should be answered ahead of time so that in the case of an attack, one knows what to do. Pretty cool. Uh, I, I really love that, actually, especially the segmentation for a company the size of DHL with 600,000 employees. That's pretty 
it's it's probably pretty hard to do and then it's also easier to do because you have the volume and scale i believe right so yeah i mean that's one of the things that it, it, that you know a lot of the companies i work with now are much smaller than dhl and don't necessarily have those resources and that's why i share my learnings because you know with such a large company we had the functions and the resources to do some of this development that other companies don't necessarily you know, can't do that development. So it's sort of a social engagement to to share the capability. Yeah, when it comes to segmentation, there's a trade-off. I mean, everybody likes a flat open network because anybody can connect and talk with anybody. Any application can talk with any other. That's very convenient. But the formula I often used was convenience is one over security or security equals one divided by convenience so that they're inversely related these two things so you know if you segment radically it becomes very difficult to communicate so you have to find a balance what's acceptable and again quantified risk assessments can help you find that balance a little bit better i'm, glad, I'm super glad i asked that okay in it feels every year People are talking about the increase in cyber risk and the, the various challenges, challenges coming with that. And actually, in hindsight, every year at the end of the year, I always think that that was actually true and there's more happening in, in this space, right? I'm not like following it super closely, but you hear about it every every day, every every hour, you see another thing happening, especially because we also, I see that happening in our system. So... A new game changer is coming up, which is AI. Mm. Do you feel that AI is going to change cyber security landscape and then the risk coming with that once again? You already mentioned vishing, which I think that's going to be a game changer. Yeah. Yes, it does grow. I mean, at the end of the day, as we digitalize more and more, all cybercrime is, is digitalized crime. So, you know, the criminals are doing what we're doing in enterprises as well. You know, it's much safer to rob a bank of a of a million euros or 10 million euros remotely sitting in a, a comfortable chair and just looking at a screen than it is, you know, going into the bank with a mask on, with a gun and so on and so forth. So, so uh, naturally, there's a migration. I mean, one of the benefits that we see is there's a lot less personal crime uh, these days in a person-on-person crime, uh, a lot more cyber crime because it's uh, it's safer and drier and warmer and all of those things. Uh, AI. Um, AI is an important tool for defense as well as attack. It is a tool, you know, just like any tool that can be used positively, it can be used negatively. Does it change how attacks take place? Sure. I mean, you know, the, the criminals use AI to find weak points, to generate very uh, credible uh, phishing messages or uh, to create profiles of people that are very credible to individuals when using social media, also to coordinate attacks so that an attack just doesn't take place on a single vector using a single breaking channel but at many different places as one, at once, trying to confuse the defenses. But of course, if the defenses are using AI, they can recognize that as well and defend equally well. So it's a bit of an arms race. Um, AI will change the risks. Uh, will it give cyber criminals an advantage over companies? I'm not sure. 
because both both sides can use the capability. Hmm. The only one thing that criminals always have the advantage of is that they don't have to follow laws like data protection laws, privacy laws, uh, all of these sort of things. But uh, you know, regular companies do so. Um, that sometimes limits how you can use these things. But typically, one can find ethical ways of 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 getting around that. Yeah. I'm I'm still musing about the the start where you talked about robbing a bank and how easier it is from home. Uh, I, I'm just this is now a wild idea maybe, but may, at one point maybe we're strengthening the cyber so much that it's going to get easier again to physically rob a bank. I don't know if that is going to happen, but <laughs> that, well, yeah. that may be the case. But of course, the banks, uh, the physical banks, are disappearing. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Um, you know, try and find a bank uh, <laughs> these days. Uh, more and more of them are closing, and there's more and more online banks coming available that yeah. it would be difficult to rob a physical bank, A, because money isn't physical. It's now digital, of course. And secondly, as I say, the banks aren't there, so there's nowhere to break into. Yeah, no, makes sense. I I agree. So That's why I say the... The environment changes over time, and that mean, means constant risk assessments to know how is your risk profile changing. Because what you had two years ago or a year ago isn't valid today, so it's an ongoing it's an ongoing topic. Hmm. That is very good, love it. So moving on, next question. I I found where you talked about uh, in one of the interviews you did actually online. You said. A good working day for a CIO and also for a CISO is having enough time between meetings to have discussions with innovative people, and then it also should end at 6 p.m. Do you? How often did you really have that scenario in your working days? Oh, often enough. I mean, the key thing is is to have a good team that you can rely on that can get on with the work without you being there. So that gives some of the time. It involves, I was lucky enough to have a, a very good PA that gave me enough time between meetings to you know, have chats with people, whether that's in the corridor over coffee or informal meetings, it doesn't really matter. And of course, we, as you will recall as well, had the luxury of having some very intelligent and smart people at, uh, at, 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 at DHL. And uh, 6 p.m., not always, but I must say the the older I got, the more I, I, I held myself to that uh, to that goal, um, you know, because you realize that the longer you work, the more mistakes you make anyway, and it takes longer to do things. So come in the next morning and do something in 10 minutes that 10 minutes at late in the evening, perhaps took you two hours. And uh, it's important to have. A balance, um, you know, whether that's sport, whether that's uh, uh, social interaction uh, with folks and just downtime to reflect and, uh, you know, think about other things than, than work. It's so, so, so important. Mm. And now talking about balance, a perfect segue, actually, for me, this is too easy, essentially, going into my next topic, which is my classical last question, it is a hobby question. That is, I know you also not only do sports, but play guitar in a band. And I even heard one of your songs. And that's why I have to just ask you, 
How does the Sultan of Swing describe your journey through your cyber-focused career? Yeah, this Sultans of Swing by by Dire Straits. Yeah, um, it's one of the songs in the set that we do. Yeah, there's a, a couple of lines in there. The guitar George, he knows all the chords. He doesn't want to make it cry or sing. And that's, you know, important. You know, I play rhythm guitar in the band, which means I'm not the lead guitar standing out in front. I'm not the singer or whatever. But music without the rhythm guitar is somehow flat. So it's an important contribution, not necessarily at the front of the stage in the limelight, uh, but important nevertheless to do it well and keep precise time. And that's sort of been a, a key thought in my career as well. You know, you don't always need to be on stage in front. Okay, occasionally I have been, but it's important to enable others to shine as well. This is very good. And now I just want to th say we're essentially at the end of the show. Thank you for being here. I really appreciated this. This was great and insightful, especially for people that come from supply chain and might not day-to-day -day work on cybersecurity. I think that was really helpful. So thank you a lot. You're welcome, Ulf. It's been, it's been, I've enjoyed talking with you. Perfect. And I want to ask everybody to um, add David Thornable on LinkedIn. He's a very insightful character. If you have any questions about cybersecurity, I'm pretty sure he's open to have a chat on it. Absolutely. And with that, I would say, I would like to say bye-bye. Bye, Elf. This was Supply Chain Pioneers. Thanks for watching, listening, or however you are enjoying this podcast. You can find Supply Chain Pioneers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all other major podcast players, as well as on YouTube at Ulf Talk Supply Chain. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. See you next time.